Welcome back to the Happy Saver podcast. I'm Ruth, a personal finance blogger right here in Aotearoa. And in this podcast, I chat with a very diverse bunch of people and I learn their story. And then, as you know, I condense it down so that you can hear helpful, relatable stories from Kiwis who are sharing their experiences, their tips and their point of view on personal finance right here in New Zealand. So let's crack on. In this episode, I'm going to be sharing the experiences of Scott and Jane. These are not their real names. Uh, They wanted to stay private, but I'm looking forward to telling you as much as I can based on our two and a quarter hour korero. The couple are from completely different backgrounds and also from different countries. Scott's from New Zealand, he's in his late 20s, and Jane's from South America and in her mid-30s. They've been together about four years and they've settled into life in the central North Island. Today I want to share how they have melded their lives together and where they are headed from here. Jane wanted to share their journey to home ownership in the hope of inspiring and helping other migrants who decide to make New Zealand home realise that they too can afford to buy their first home if that is what they aspire to do. But before I jump into it, I've got a quick message from Pocketsmith, today's sponsor. In this podcast, I've spoken to many people who live and work between a few countries. Maybe they work overseas for part of the year and have assets, bank and superannuation accounts in that country, but then return home to family in another. These global citizens and digital nomads use Pocketsmith's multi-currency feature to manage bank accounts and assets in different countries and upload digital copies of all the essential documents specific to each country. This gives them the confidence to do their own financial admin and keep the cash flow, well, flowing, no matter where they are in the world. Use Pocketsmith to keep track of your whole financial life in one place, no matter if that place is here, there, or somewhere in between. If you want to supercharge your finances with Pocketsmith, they've got a deal for you. Happy Saver listeners get a whopping 50% off your first two months of Pocketsmith's premium plan. To get your deal, go to pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. That's pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. Now, because today's couple have grown up on opposite sides of the world, Firstly, I'm going to tell you a bit about Scott and then a bit about Jane. Well, for Scott, he never paid too much attention to Pooty growing up and he doesn't recall any negativity or stress around money in his whānau of five, which consisted of his parents and two older siblings. They always had enough, so discussions around money never played a huge role in his upbringing. In his younger years before high school, He would get, wait for it, $2 of pocket money a week for doing chores around the house. If he did a bit extra, such as mowing the lawns or trimming the hedges or washing a car, well, he could get a little more money. And of the money he earned, Scott doesn't recall spending much of it. Spending has never really been his thing, and it still isn't. When he was little, he got paid in cash, and that money went into a piggy bank. And when he got a bit older, his parents opened a bank account for him, and his mum in particular helped him deposit the money there instead. He credits his parents as playing a large part in how he thinks about money today, but from the chat we had, the lessons taught were not overt, more of a teaching from example kind of financial education. He was pretty disinterested in money. He never had much interest in his bank account. He was happy enough just relying on the recommendations from his parents to deposit money in it, but he didn't really think about why. And part of the reason he remains a low spender to this day is because he grew up in a small town with very few shops, 
So there was really no place to spend his money. The one thing growing kids do need is an ever-increasing amount of clothing in bigger sizes, but even this was inexpensive for him, with his aunts and sisters hitting the op shops, buying him all the clothes he needed. His parents both worked, his mum in natural health and his dad as a business analyst, and they clearly had a good head for personal finance. So it sounds like they steered him in a good direction without making too much fuss about it. As a family, they never spent much money. Instead, they were very handy around the house, great at fixing things themselves, and none of them were overly materialistic when it came to spending money on stuff. They bought and paid off their own home, and with the help of family, they made cost-effective additions and upgrades to it over the years. Occasionally, his mum brought up the topic of money, but he was not really interested in it. And to give an insight into the conversations that may have gone on, but have since been forgotten, is the fact that he remembers at the age of about 10 doing a school project on the stock market. A boring topic for both his classmates and himself, he said. But around that time, he said his parents must have been getting interested themselves and suggested the topic. They wanted him to learn about it too. But at that time, apart from checking the business section of the newspaper as research for his project for a short stint, he was just not interested. And it would later become apparent that his mum stayed interested. When he hit high school, his pocket money increased to $10 a week, with only a few additional chores needing to be done for the money. And all through high school, his lack of interest about money persisted. And at this point, I wondered how this podcast might pan out. His mum would talk to him about the pocket money building up in his bank account, and she would ask him if he wanted to invest it. And he would say, yeah, okay. And then she would do all the actual investing. He had no idea how it was done or what she invested it in. But thinking back, he said that maybe there might have been some Auckland Airport shares, and that memory comes from a time that they flew through the airport, and she pointed out to him that, quote, you own a toilet at the airport, which must have been a very strange thing for a kid to associate with investing. He was also inadvertently taught a little bit about budgeting, when he and his siblings were given $25 a week to go to the supermarket and buy all that they needed for their school lunches for that week. They had been complaining about what was on offer from the fridge and pantry at home, so sorting out the shopping themselves, it really solved that problem. And when his siblings left home, well, he let that slide, as he was happy enough with making his own lunch from whatever was in the pantry at home, which also saved his parents that extra $25 shopping expense. In senior school, Scott had a few part-time jobs, such as he tried working at a cafe, on a local farm, or just doing odd jobs around people's houses. None of them fired him up, they were just jobs, and the money he made went, you guessed it, into his bank account. KiwiSaver was mentioned by his mum occasionally because she had signed him up to it, but he didn't show too much interest in that investment at all, and in hindsight, he knows that his parents were contributing a small amount to it, and once he was over the age of 18 and studying, well, they contributed the $1,042 a year so that he could get the $521 government contribution. After he finished school, Scott headed down to Christchurch to study engineering, and he didn't really know what he wanted to do, and he chose this course because out of all the options open to him, he liked this one slightly more than the others. He spent his first year in a hall of residence before going flatting for the remaining three years of his four-year qualification. And now that he was away from home, he got a debit card, and he finally started showing a little interest in his bank account because he had to start paying for rent and food. He used student loans to pay for both his living and course costs, 
and he remembers seeing about $170 deposited into his bank account each week, meaning that every week he went another $170 further into student loan debt. And it was just a given that he would take out student loans and he didn't apply for any scholarships to try to offset his costs either. Scott had some additional income coming in each week. He had $50 from his parents and he had a few small odd jobs during study. And early into his study, he found a steady three-hour-a-week gardening job that paid him $20 cash an hour, so $60 a week of really reliable income. So with a total income of $280 a week, and because he was flatting and he cooked communally with his flatmates, he had more money than he needed, living on about $220 a week, he remembered. He still didn't look at his bank account too much, so doesn't remember getting low on funds at any point. He actually remembers being very flush with cash from his gardening job, which paid him in actual cash, money he didn't really need to spend. It was helpful that Scott was not into the heavy drinking side of student life, because that is definitely a way to drive costs up. And each summer he would do odd jobs painting houses and gardening, and at one point he even secured a summer job with a regional council up north. But that money sat in his bank, and he didn't really spend that either. To get the council job in his final year of study, he finally bought a car probably his biggest expenditure at about five and a half thousand and he paid cash for that of course but once back down south to study he actually didn't even need a car so hopefully you're picking up on the vibe here that this guy is pretty laid back about things so it's no surprise that he didn't keep track of his student loan balance either but at the end of four years of study it was he said about sixty thousand dollars in a nice surprise once his four-year course was complete his parents actually stepped up and paid $20,000 off his loan balance. Now this was out of the blue. It was not something they'd ever promised nor discussed, but it instantly took his loan down to forty grand. In his first proper job, one that used his new qualification, he earned about $55,000 a year. And while still not interested in investing or money in general, straight out of the gate, he contributed 10% from his wages to his KiwiSaver and his employer contributed 3% which I thought was kind of interesting, so we talked a little further. He was aware that since his first $2 pocket money paycheck, his parents had been investing his money for him, plus also chipping in themselves, so he was vaguely aware that there were shares somewhere, but he had no clue, apart from that toilet that he apparently owned at Auckland Airport, what he was invested in or what the value of it was. Therefore, he was, quote, quite surprised to hear that his KiwiSaver balance and those investments totaled about $60,000. And he remembers looking at a graph of his KiwiSaver investment before his new job began, and the balance was about $9,000. He was surprised it had grown so much. Well, he thought it must be something good, something worth keeping going, and that's what led him to put 10% of his income into KiwiSaver. Still, he was not overly interested in those details. And Scott just got on with life, really. It took him a bit to get used to what felt like a very high income coming into his bank account each week. And because he'd never been one to buy much at all, or if he did, it was secondhand, the money kind of just stayed put in his bank account. Now, I'd love to meet his parents and hear their side of the story and learn whether they did, in fact, try to instill some financial wisdom into their son at regular intervals, or if they did, in fact, just lead by example by being great managers of money themselves while also investing on his behalf with their own money and then make him invest a portion of each of his pocket money and then pay slip, in the hope that when his interest in Putia did finally wake up, he had a great base to build on. 
Now, I get the feeling it might have been the latter, because the fact that he had paid no interest in his KiwiSaver until his first job at a university, and then he saw that his balance was already a really decent amount, it was obvious that he should continue on with it. It makes a lot of sense. There was no need for a lengthy explanation of why KiwiSaver is a good idea. He just saw the balance of his fund, the amount he'd put in himself, and the returns he had received. This might just be parenting genius in action. But back to the story. In his first year of working, the stars were in alignment, and he met Jane. Now, over to Jane. She took quite the journey to finally end up at the same place, at the same time as Scott, and she said of her upbringing that some parts were similar and some completely different to Scott. Reflecting back on her South American upbringing, she thinks that her father was a good provider for herself, her two siblings, and her mum. There was always plenty of food, and they owned their own house in the large capital city that she grew up in, with a population of, wait for it, about 10 million people. But everything stopped when her dad started having health issues caused by an accident that he'd had. He ran a market stall that required him to be on his feet all day, and it became harder and harder to work that way. So he tried to find other work such as cleaning and security work, both jobs done at night time. Her mum had to start looking for paid work as well. Now Jane never received pocket money. She worked out very early on that if she and her siblings wanted something, well they had to earn the money to get it. So while in primary school, the three of them, who were all just a year apart in age, they'd work on the weekends for extended family at a food stall that they ran at a market. But making money was a family affair. And Jane remembers, at the age of about 14 or 15, working well into the night with her father and siblings at his cleaning jobs and her mum waiting up for them to come home safely. They needed to help her dad to do his work to get the money coming into their home. Now, at school, she said she was a good student, but not amazing. And her parents, who finished high school but didn't go on to any further study, well, they knew that education was important for the three of them if they wanted to secure good jobs in life. Jane was always aware of budgeting and money, and she knew without even having to discuss it that she didn't want to put her parents in the situation of her having to ask them for money. She simply assumed that if she wanted money, she needed to work for it herself. When she finished school, her parents pushed her to study further and get a good job. Her older sibling finished school one year before her, and her parents had just enough money to help him study at a tertiary level. And because of the place he was studying, and the fact his grades were good enough, and because of the course he was taking, they were able to borrow money from the bank to fund his study. So, very different to the interest-free government loans in New Zealand. And in Jane's brother's case, these loans incurred interest. His parents acted as guarantors, and when the study was finished, it all needed to be paid back as soon as they were able, if they wanted to stop incurring more interest. But her family knew that with a good education, her sibling could get a better job and pay these debts off. Now because Jane knew her parents were helping her older sibling, she also knew there was no money left for her. With another sibling coming up behind her, it was not possible for them to support all of their children's studies. So if she wanted their financial help by way of being a guarantor on the loans and paying out of pocket for her costs, well she would need to wait for her brother to finish so that they could then help her. But this would take a few years, and she just didn't want to put her life on hold. So instead, as soon as she finished high school, she decided to go to work, and she worked full-time for one year and saved hard. In her second year out of school, she worked full-time, 
and studied at a tertiary level full-time. She applied to study for free at major respected public universities, but sadly she missed out. In order to pick where to study the business courses she wanted to do, she did a ton of research. When your city has 10 million people in it, you do have alternative options available to you, something that we don't see so much of in a country the size of Aotearoa. Her research was important because there were a lot of scam education centres that she needed to avoid, and she ended up at a cheaper university, which was linked with and then led her to a bigger and more prestigious university. And she worked out how to work the education system to get the degree she wanted far cheaper, plus she was able to also study extra papers. Now, in her country, you must study for five years to earn a university degree. Now, all students in New Zealand, and probably their caregivers, please listen up to this next bit, particularly those who moan about the fact that they can't possibly find the time to pick up even the minimum amount of paid work while studying. Jane studied full-time, and then she worked a full-time job at the same time. She picked up work at a supermarket, she worked cleaning jobs, and also worked in cafes. And if she didn't do this, then she wouldn't be able to study because, unlike her sibling, who was studying quite a specific course, the bank would not have lent money to her for her more generalised course of study. So if she wanted to study to improve her chances of getting ahead in her city, she simply did what she had to do. She worked her tail off both day and night, and I absolutely commend her for that. In the middle of her studies, she actually started putting her business degree to use early by working in accounting-type roles for good companies. Now, it was very interesting for Jane to see people from different backgrounds and get some insight into what they had financially. And this exposure to a wide range of others, it showed her another side of life and it helped her compare their lifestyle to hers. Plus, all that work experience made her transition from studying to working far easier. While her parents couldn't afford to give her money, they could house and feed her. So she and her two siblings all lived at home while they studied. From her paid work, she actually contributed money to the household and was always very aware of both her income and her expenses, always making sure that her salary would exactly match her expenses. Because she sounded like such an exceptional planner, she also set aside a little money to take some breaks during her university holidays, but she was always extremely careful to have enough money coming in to cover any days that she took off work. So, As a result, and all credit to her, she finished her course with no debt. Now, could her experience be any more different than Scott or other New Zealand students? I'm not sure they could. And to accentuate the difference between the two cultures a little bit further, when the three siblings had all finished their studies, it was decided that it was best that their parents not work at all. Both were having problems with their health and both were getting older so it was decided that Jane and her two siblings would collectively contribute and support them from their incomes. She would have been around 23 or 24 at this time, and this was not easy for her to accept, she said. And looking around her, she saw that her friends and peers, well, they had an easier life. Their parents had paid for the education or assisted them financially in some way, and they didn't need to work while they studied. And although she was not overly happy about it, now that she is an adult in her mid-30s, she can see that financially helping her parents was the best decision to make and she's now at peace with it and she continues to support them to this day. Through those years of study, Jane used a couple of credit cards to pay her way but she never paid interest on any of them and instead she used them to earn points and they were always paid off on time. 
and she always kept a record of her expenses and she still does the same using a spreadsheet to track her spending. She remembers from her childhood that even if her parents didn't have much money, her mum always saved for a rainy day. And when faced with a decision to walk or take the bus, they always walked to save money. And when something unexpected did come up, well that saved bus money would then be used to cover that expense. And her mum would point out to her that this is why she had saved the money instead, to pay for the unexpected. Her mum also always cooked at home, breakfast, lunch and dinner, and was always very caring. And this was her way of supporting her tamariki while they studied and worked. Only once the three of them started working did they start to go out for the odd dinner out. Now as far as investing goes during those years, she did have a family member who was interested in term deposits and spoke to her about it, which got Jane interested in term deposits. And she also had family members who invested in the share market, and they even took her to visit a share broker, but she never did proceed considering it just far too risky. And given her country of birth, I think her caution was well placed. Now her last job before coming to New Zealand was as a risk analyst for a large company, and it was a good job, but what motivated her to travel was that she and her siblings were still living at home, and with five adults in the home, thoughts turned to buying a bigger house, and many conversations around the dinner table began, and Jane felt a growing sense of panic about committing to this long-term plan, which would involve taking on debt. Now aged in her early 30s, she wanted to travel. She was getting bored with her job, and debt would prevent her from travelling because she would need to stay and work an 8-to-5 job to make the payments, and she didn't want that right now, so it was now or never. She started looking at travel options and found that New Zealand was one of the few countries with a working holiday visa arrangement with her country. And in September of 2018, she came here for one year with the full intention of working to make enough money to cover all her costs while here, while not touching any of the money that she had saved back home. She reached out to the people she knew who had already come here to work and travel, and she spent her first week living for free with a woman who offered free accommodation in return for Jane bringing over food from their home country. And Jane, like her mother and like Scott as well, always likes to look for ways to reduce expenses, so she grabbed this chance. She did lots of different jobs when she came here. She didn't really mind what she did. She simply wanted to work and enjoy new experiences. And she mostly worked in orchards and did laundry and worked in hospitality. She travelled all over Aotearoa from top to bottom, meeting up with old friends and making new ones as she went along. And eventually she ended up in the same North Island town as Scott and life began to take her in a whole new direction. They knew quickly that there was a connection between them, but with her visa running out, time was of the essence. She applied for an extension, which was denied, so four months after they met, she actually had to return home. But right at that time, Scott, as luck would have it, was made redundant from his job, and he got a small payout, so he decided to go with Jane until his new job started. And four months into their new relationship, from a financial point of view, they knew that they could both afford plane tickets and pay for whatever they wanted to do when they got there. And with financial security, it was just a really easy decision to go. They travelled all over her country and did all the touristy things, plus they spent a lot of time with Jane's family, and the plan was that Scott would return to New Zealand in February of 2020, and Jane would apply for another visa and return with him. But then, as we all know, COVID hit, 
He came back to New Zealand alone because by then all the borders were closing and because she was not a resident or a citizen, she could not travel to New Zealand at all. Although the situation was dire worldwide and they were both gutted at having their plans interrupted, the good thing was that because Jane had savings, she was okay because she knew she could support herself and her family for a year. She knew she had enough. Her rainy day fund was ready and waiting. And having that sort of backstop, it makes your decision making in a stressful time far easier. For seven months, she was at home avoiding COVID. While that might have caused uncertainty, she knew that the money was not a problem. And staying at home also meant that they spent very little because they just really couldn't go out. She couldn't come to New Zealand. But once Kiwis could travel again, Scott visited her and her family for a couple of months. He took his laptop with him and worked his new engineering job online for about 20 hours a week. And because they were still largely stuck inside, they had a lot of time to navigate our immigration system and apply for the appropriate visa for Jane to come to New Zealand. It was, they said, extremely complicated. They were declined a partnership visa, but she was granted a visitor visa for a year. And then once she did arrive back here, she applied for a work visa, which was very quickly granted. Now, a large number of 20-somethings flocked to investing during COVID. They had time on their hands to learn, and Scott was absolutely one of them. He said he did a lot of reading during that time in South America. The first resource he read was actually Money Hub, as they dive deep into explaining many investing concepts, such as what an index fund is, he said. And he signed up to Sharesies and spent a few months of investing $5 at a time, seeing what happened and getting familiar with the processes. Clearly, the information about index funds missed its mark as he spread that $5 over six to seven individual stocks. And during his research, he had heard about a competition where brokers pick stocks that they think will do well in the coming year, and Scott picked from that list. Now, personally, if I hear the two words stocks and competition used in the same sentence, well, I'd run a mile because, in all honesty, he admitted that he had no idea really what to look for. So, he based his decisions on other people's opinions. Not too long after his initial foray into investing, in late 2021, he put his money where his mouth was and put most of his savings, which is about 20 grand, into shares, splitting his money 50-50 between a variety of individual company shares and a New Zealand top 50 ETF. Now, as luck would have it, and like many new investors at that time, well, he managed to time the top of the market meaning he bought shares when they were at their peak. Now, if you are new to investing, well, the aim if you are picking stocks and ETFs is to buy them at the lowest price, not the highest. Now, as at late October 2023, he is still in the doldrums with these investments, but throughout this whole time, he has continued to invest money into these same investments and has a current balance of about $28,000 because he has continued to buy as the share markets have dropped. He is buying at a cheaper price. Over time, most of the individual companies he said were down, a couple were positive, and while I can't speak for the individual company shares he owns, that New Zealand 50 ETF it will recover, because if you pull back to a 10-year overview, well over time the share market goes up. Thankfully, Scott and Jane have time on their side. In order to learn how to invest, he also watched a lot of YouTube, and one standout for him was a guy, a Kiwi guy, called Investing with Tom. Scott noticed that most companies that were being talked about were US-based, so quite early on he also signed up to investing platform Hatch, and he began to pick some of the stocks he heard most frequently mentioned, as expected to do well. 
All the while, he was trying to understand their reasoning, and it was easier to choose companies that others had spent a lot of time analysing, and he felt more comfortable looking at what others were looking at. The issue with this might be that you are all flocking to the same stock, potentially driving the price up. Now, it's very common for investors to feel they need to be doing something and actively paying attention and dabbling with your investments in order to make money out of the share market. Buying low and selling high is the aim, but it's very hard to do in reality. So only time will tell if you were right or not. And I'd be the same if I thought that it would work. But thankfully, I don't invest that way. And I've noticed over the years that even people who do it for a living by working for investment firms, well, they can't pick the winners and losers accurately over time. So honestly, what hope would I have? He told me that investing with Tom and others like him dive deeply into what large hedge fund managers are investing in and they try to mimic that in some way. And I can relate to Scott's experience about learning to invest because I too went down the path of trying to research and pick individual companies and I did really well with one, which was Meridian Energy, but I failed abysmally with all the others before finally realising that my time was actually far better spent doing anything else but trying to pick the next company that would boom. Now, it took me a while to realise that I was never going to manage to pick the winners when the hedge fund managers, those with every piece of information at their fingertips, couldn't. And that's why I just buy ETF funds these days instead. Now, Scott, he keeps a foot in each camp. He's got 50% of his money in the ETFs and 50% in single stocks. So time will tell how it works out for him. Six months after they'd settled back into New Zealand and they both had jobs, they decided that they would like to begin saving up a deposit to buy a home together. To cut costs, they went flatting with others, they meal prepped, they biked to work, and they really stuck to a budget, and they estimated it would take them about two years to bring a deposit together. Further research made them realise that because she was not yet a resident of New Zealand, well, she couldn't buy a home. So she pushed on with gaining residency in New Zealand, which took about a year, and as soon as that eventually happened, she also signed up to KiwiSaver. And that's when they also started to look at houses, now that she could legally do so. They looked at where the money would come from for a house deposit, and they came up with the following plan. And they fully intended on getting into their own home, under their own steam, and they developed a plan to make it happen. Each of them would save $20,000 a year, making $40,000 saved up over a 12-month period. Scott had $45,000 in KiwiSaver by this stage, and they estimated that if they stuck to this path, it would take them about two years to save enough. But unexpectedly, his parents stepped in and gave them a whopping $80,000, making a total deposit of $165,000. Now, they had wondered if his parents might help, because he had an inkling that they had helped his siblings, but he didn't like to ask, and he certainly didn't like to assume that they would. So their initial plan was based solely on them saving their butts off, and this helping hand, it got them to their goal so much faster. They went to a mortgage broker, who told them the maximum amount that they could borrow, and then they started visiting open homes. They had a budget of $600,000, which is less than what the broker said they could go up to. From deciding they would like to purchase a home to actually getting one, it took one and a half years. And in November of 2022, they paid $575,000 for their first home. With her residency confirmed, and both of them working in their chosen professional career fields again, 
and their combined incomes totaling about $150,000 a year gross, their bank wanted them to take out a 30-year mortgage. But they didn't want that, so they pushed back and they said that they wanted to lower the term by making larger payments. And this is how their financial situation is roughly looking now. They both now pay into a Simplicity Growth KiwiSaver Fund and both have a balance of about $8,000. Remember that Scott had to start from scratch having drained his KiwiSaver for that house deposit. Once all the costs of buying had been factored into the purchase price, their mortgage was $420,000 and they split it into two different loans of $210,000 apiece. Loan 1 had a one-year term and a mortgage interest rate of 5.4%. It came up for renewal in November 2023 and it will move to a higher interest rate of 6.75% at that time. The balance owing when we spoke has reduced to about $185,000 now, so they have paid off about $25,000 in a year. Loan 2 has a two-year term and an interest rate of 5.7%. They also owe about $185,000 on this one meaning a total mortgage still to pay of $370,000. So, just one year in, having paid off $50,000, they are making very, very good inroads into their debt. They still keep their finances separate, so during this time, each has a bank account of their own, where they are also setting aside any spare money so that they can make lump sum payments to their mortgage, and their aim is to each contribute an additional $5,000 towards their mortgage each year. Remember I said their bank offered a 30-year term and Scott and Jane thought that they could clear it by 15 years, but they've since revised that down to 10 years. But on this current trajectory, if they keep doing what they're doing, by my calculations, it'll actually be gone well within eight years. But nothing stays the same and sometimes opportunities pop up that we just don't see coming. Scott's parents have, amazingly and unexpectedly, gifted them another $60,000. It turns out that all those years ago when his mum was trying to impart some financial wisdom onto Scott, she was taking her own advice and growing the family wealth, meaning that they now have enough to keep themselves living a good life and enough to be generous to their three children. And to me, that's the path that I want to take with my daughter too. And it's what the book by Bill Perkins called Die With Zero talks about about having enough money to give an inheritance to children at the time of their life when it can be of the most use, such as for a first home. And now they face the questions about how to deploy this unexpected blessing. Scott's thought is to put half of it towards the mortgage and invest the other half. But there are other things to take into consideration. They would like to start a family. They already save and set money aside to visit her family. And perhaps, if they can coax her parents to do so, pay for them to visit her in her new home in New Zealand. And because they are low spenders and good savers, it has allowed Jane to transition from a job that bored her into one that she likes a lot better but has a lower salary. But at the same time, he got a pay rise in his role. Now, there is the Sharesies account with a balance of about $28,000 plus another $12,000 invested with Hatch. Also, remember all those years ago when his mum had him investing in toilets at Auckland Airport and many other things besides that he never did learn about? Well, they are collectively now worth about $60,000. Now, I'm a huge fan of getting our tamariki started early with investing. I've done it with my daughter, who is now 16, and her net worth is about $35,000. And I like hearing from people such as Scott, whose parents took the bull by the horns 
invested a little of their own money for their child, plus made their child invest their earned money too. And in Scott's case, it's paid off with a good KiwiSaver balance and this portfolio of shares. Starting your children early, if you have the means to do so, means their money can compound over time and it absolutely works. And finally, there's one more piece to the puzzle. Scott still has an $8,000 student loan. He has been steadily paying it down from his paycheck. So during the call, and long after we finished it, I reflected on what I would do if I woke up in their shoes with this generous contribution from his parents. They had both said to me that in time they would like to work four or fewer days a week, giving them time to explore other interests and do things for the love of it, not just because of the money. They would like to have time to do some community service where once again they don't have to worry about the money. And in my own financial life, Johnny and I are forever adjusting course as new challenges and opportunities come our way. And my dreams and ambitions, they're not too dissimilar to theirs. So I had some thoughts on what I'd do in this situation. So this is the theoretical equivalent of what would I do if I won lotto. With that 60 grand, I'd immediately pay off that student loan, therefore getting an immediate 12% salary increase. I'd redirect that 12% towards ETF investments and I'd fully stock an emergency fund for the both of us so that if work gets boring and we need to change again, well, we can. Or if life throws us lemons again, well, we could cope. Or if we are lucky enough to get pregnant, we have the makings of a really good maternity leave buffer. I'd top up sinking funds for future trips home to visit family and I'd plan and set money aside for any other upcoming expenses such as home repairs. Then I just put the remainder towards the mortgage that has the highest interest rate. And this way, our only debt would be the mortgage. We would have a big emergency fund as a buffer for life happening to us, and all other bank accounts are full and being added to with just our normal weekly top-ups from wages. And one final thing I would do is look really closely at that investment portfolio of odds and sods that others suggested are good buying, and I'd rebalance and consolidate my investments and consider if that money is not better used towards paying off a mortgage. Now, this point of view obviously comes from life experience. I just know how much easier life can be when you keep the math simple, you keep your finances simple, and you don't have to send your pay to the bank or government each week to pay off debt. And I still don't buy the student loans are interest-free, so why would you pay them back quickly argument? Because as Scott is experiencing, he invested money that could have gone to student loans and the value of that money has now gone down. That's my two cents and at the end of the day, I'm just happy for both of them that they even have the opportunity in real life to decide what they want to do with such a generous gift from his family. While Scott has a lot going on, having added pieces to his investing puzzle over his entire lifetime, Jane is also now investing. She has about $8,000 spread across investing platforms, Sharesies and InvestNow, plus a term deposit of about 20 grand. She still finds term deposits to be extremely useful, and she uses them when she wants her money to be more accessible to her, which is exactly the right approach. You don't invest money in the share market that you will require within the next 5 to 10 years. All up, she says she's investing about 30% of her income, and that's not including the mortgage payments she's making. So I hope you're keeping up with all of this. Money's complicated, and when it comes to keeping separate finances, well, it adds another layer of complexity to any situation. 
They've been together for four years now. They do not have a relationship property agreement and they are heading towards marriage. So you know I had to ask about how they see themselves handling money in the years to come. Put simply, they think of their money together and they plan things together. If they have children, they will share whatever income is brought into the home, but for the time being will retain their banking system of moving money from his or her account to the shared accounts. It's all too confusing for me to try to explain, but the gist is that it's the usual story of the complexity of combining the financial lives of two adults and two independent people into a single system that works for both of them. They now budget and put money into a shared account for common expenses, and they each have money of their own to do with what they will. And he is preferring the share market for investing, and she leans more towards the safety of term deposits. In summary, I think they have all the makings of finding a really strong common ground. Neither of them waste money. Both have good jobs. One tends to the riskier side, but potentially more financially, more rewarding side of investing, while the other is more conservative. Their upbringings were vastly different, but the same in many ways, and they're all good elements of a good financial plan. And as the years unfold, I really hope that instead of following their individual plans, they create their own shared vision, because it's going to cut down on paperwork and time. Now that he is showing more interest in Putia, and given that his parents have been so generous to him, he now talks about money more with his parents than he ever has. And I suspect that they might have some really valuable insights to share with this couple about how to manage money in a relationship. So now seems like as good a time as any to ask them about their worst money mistake to date. Scott said that maybe it might be the decision to pursue buying individual company shares as an investment, but he is not admitting defeat on that just yet. He is hanging on in there and giving it a go to see if it will make a difference in growing his wealth. He figures that with his one ETF and with the KiwiSavers being managed funds, he is hedging his bets here. So next I ask, what's the best thing that they've done with their money over time? Well, they both feel really fortunate to have grown up as savers. And the fact they both have similar thoughts about money, budgeting and work is a definite win. The fact they lean towards saving money and not spending it has taught them so much about money and it's shown them that they can make things last, such as furniture or clothing and that they can do so many things themselves instead of paying someone else to do them. Even with their completely different backgrounds, they don't feel stressed about money, and both of them feel very lucky to have parents who support them, either with their money or with their love. And if I gave them 10 grand right now, what might they do with it? Well, Jane would put it against the mortgage if she got that 10 grand this year, or if it arrived next year, she would put it towards her parents coming to New Zealand to perhaps visit for the first time. And Scott would invest it all. Half would go into individual shares and half into index funds. Scott also told me that he has opened up an investing account for each of his three nieces and nephews, all of whom are under the age of five at the moment. And each month he is investing $10 into an ETF fund and his hope is that they will have a few thousand dollars each when they leave home, money that could go towards a car or a house deposit, he thinks. Now, I think that this is interesting because Back when he was a little kid, his parents did exactly the same for him. And as an adult, he's seen the end result of early investing habits. So I'm pleased he wants to continue this routine for a new generation. And as we wound up our korero, Jane wanted to really point out to you that she feels it is entirely possible to buy your own home in New Zealand. 
Yes, she acknowledged that they were very lucky to get money from Scott's parents, but they still could have done it themselves and they had developed a savings plan to do it on their own. It just would have taken a bit longer. Now, before I wrap up, I just have another quick message from today's sponsor. If you want to supercharge your finances with Pocketsmith, they've got a deal for you. Happy Saver listeners get a whopping 50% off your first two months of Pocketsmith's premium plan. To get your deal, go to pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. That's pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. I really enjoyed speaking with Jane and Scott at this stage in their lives, and I particularly enjoy speaking with people from other countries that have chosen to make New Zealand their home because often they come from countries without the support that we have here. And if you live somewhere where no one else is going to make your life better, well, you've got to decide to do it all by yourself. That's why she said she specifically wanted others to know that buying your own home or saving up for any monetary goal for that matter is entirely possible. You just have to decide to do it and make a plan and make it happen. And you've got to work. Reaching your goals will always involve a ton of mahi. So no two ways about it. Scott had a far easier time of it, but what I took from speaking with him was that his parents did an outstanding job of teaching a kid who had zero interest in money how to still be good with it. And I get the strong feeling that they just led by example. They dropped in useful bits of information when they could, and they hoped that some of it stuck. And then they waited. And sure enough, one day he decided to get interested. I do think he is veering off course with his investing, but I actually have no doubt that he's got enough great skills under his belt to iron out any weaknesses in his plans over time. And finally, birds of a feather do flock together, and although these two hail from completely different parts of the globe, they manage to connect with each other and build a life together. The fact that his parents have helped him into a home at the same time as Jane is supporting her own parents It just gives a contrast to the fact that people can lead complex lives and still find the perfect partner to share it all with. And I think that's pretty special. And I just wanted to really thank them both for their time. And I wish them a financially secure, long and happy life together. So that is all from me this week. And if you want to get in touch with me, you know you can find me at thehappysaver.com. And thanks also to all the people who send me such lovely emails telling me you like this podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time to do that. And please do share this episode with your friends. It is the best way that people can learn about the podcast. And I would love it if you would talk more about money with your own friends and whanau and continue to help me help others be better with money. So until next time, happy saving. Happy saving.